welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled Pulmonary Arterial Hypertension, A Deeper Dive, is provided by American Thoracic Society and AKH, and is supported by an independent educational grant from Actillion Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated, a Janssen Pharmaceutical Company of Johnson & Johnson, and Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Thanks to everyone for being here today. I know that schedules are, are crazy and we're thrilled that so many people have joined this live program on pulmonary arterial hypertension, a deeper dive. I am thrilled to, to be here with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Rich Chanick. Uh, Rich, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hi everybody, it's Rich Chanick and uh, calling in from the West Coast. So um, it's a pleasure to be working with Val and a pleasure to be speaking with you about uh, pulmonary hypertension today. Yeah, and I'm Valerie McLaughlin. I'm from the University of Michigan and uh, Rich and I want to make this um, a, a very casual program. We want to have a lot of interaction and we want to have a lot of questions for you. So please feel free to send questions into the chat and we'll try to get to them, um, as many of them as possible. So let me just give you a little bit of um, an outline of what we're going to talk about. We're, we're going to talk about pulmonary hypertension, diagnosis, functional uh, classification, natural history, and we're going to focus a lot on risk assessment before we go into the medications. And I, you know, I think everyone knows that really what brings patients to us is the fact that they just can't live a normal life. They have incredible functional impairment, whether that is reduced exercise capacity because they want to be more active or whether they can't even just get through simple activities of daily living or take care of their kids or do their job. Um, they have a lot of exercise limitations. But this also translates into many other areas of their life. They, they can't do social activities. They can't travel. Um, you know, it also impairs their psychological function. I mean, this is a, a very devastating diagnosis. So um, it has implications for patients with uh, depression, anxiety, trouble sleeping, uh, family relationships, and, and, and the like. So it's, it's a really challenging diagnosis. Now, I want to remind everyone that you cannot make the diagnosis of pulmonary arterial hypertension without a right heart catheterization. I think we're all experiencing the, the um, patients who are referred to us because of an echo demonstrating an elevated RVSP, and there are many reasons for an elevated RVSP on echocardiogram and many causes of pulmonary hypertension, um, but to really be called group one pulmonary arterial hypertension, one has to go through a very exhaustive diagnostic algorithm, which culminates in the right heart catheterization. So this is required to confirm the diagnosis, to calculate resistance, to do vasodilator testing, which guides therapy, um, it also excludes the other potential causes of pulmonary hypertension. Occasionally, we find someone with an undiagnosed shunt, uh, but really one of the most common causes of pulmonary hypertension that gets referred to our clinics is left heart disease, is elevated left heart filling pressures uh, from systolic dysfunction, diastolic dysfunction, or a valvular lesion that leads to group two pulmonary hypertension. And I think there's something that's really important about the cath is, is determining the degree of right ventricular dysfunction, which has very important implications for treatment. You know, we think of this disease as a disease of pressure. You know, pressure defines this disease. But in terms of the severity of illness and the prognosis and the decision-making regarding treatment, it's really the function of the right ventricle that is most critical. It's, you know, what is the RA pressure and what is the cardiac output or index? And so those are really critical uh, parts of the right heart catheterization. So on the right side of this slide, you see the essential components of doing a, a complete right heart catheterization, the saturations to make sure that we are not missing an intracardiac shunt, the right atrial pressure, as I mentioned, important uh, indicator of right ventricular function, the pulmonary artery pressure, of course, defines the disease. Um, 
The left heart filling pressures helps us determine whether this is group one or group two. Uh, and again, group two pulmonary hypertension is very common. The cardiac output and index, again, which are important implications for right ventricular function and the management of therapy, uh, and uh, the calculation of pulmonary vascular resistance, which is really just um, the pressure gradient across the pulmonary vasculature, so mean pulmonary artery pressure minus the left heart filling pressure, the wedge or left ventricular end diastolic pressure, um, divided by the cardiac output. And then, of course, vasodilator testing in a certain population, um, specifically the idiopathic heritable and drug and toxin-induced, because a handful of them may have a very robust reduction in their mean pulmonary artery pressure with an acute agent such as inhaled nitric oxide, and that has really important implications for their therapy. They may respond to calcium channel blockers. Now, Rich, you've been doing right heart catheterizations for decades, I, I would say. Do you have any pearls that you want to share with the audience about performing a good right heart catheterization? Yeah, I think that I think the point is that it's not as easy as it seems. And certainly over the decades, you know, we've I've seen many instances where, you know, you can get misleading information because there's some critical things. I mean, one of the things is, you know, getting an accurate wedge pressure and I'm sure as you know as well as anybody, Val, that's easier said than done in patients who have very high pulmonary artery pressure. So, you know, one needs to really ensure the accuracy of the waveforms. There's a lot of respiratory variation. Where do we measure in the respiratory cycle? So a lot of little nuances to obtaining a good right heart cath. Um, I think that, um, you know, we've learned over the years that, um, you know, the, the cath is only as good as, as the numbers that you're getting. And I think in addition, when you think of things like a wedge pressure, because you can have such big importance, I mean, we have to look at the big picture. And so, I mean, to give a really brief example, you know, I have a patient with a borderline wedge pressure that we think is even accurate at 14 or 15, sort of falls within the precapillary zone. But if this is a older patient, lots of comorbidities, obese, where we really have high suspicion for left heart disease and they're on diuretics, that's part of the whole picture. So classifying these patients is more than just about the cath. And I think I would just underscore your point about the measures of cardiac output, cardiac index, right atrial pressure, and saturation being far more important than the pulmonary artery pressure itself. Right. And one of our audience members, um, our dear friend Terry Trow, made the um, um, important point of where we measure the wedge pressure, and it should be measured at end expiration and end diastole. And, um, you know, that's a really important point. I think as a cardiologist, we often do LVEDPs with our first right heart catheterization, and those tend to be less, um, uh, less uh, difficult in terms of some of the challenges of obtaining them. There's just less room for error with how far the balloons build up or uh, blown yeah. up or, you know, where the catheter is. That just makes it a little bit easier. I think, Rich, you were alluding to some of the challenges with really trying to tell for sure if a patient has a normal wedge as group one, or if someone with a number of risk factors um, for left ventricular diastolic dysfunction, if we might be missing them doing a right heart catheterization after an overnight fast, and they might be a little bit dry. And so mm -hmm. can you comment on the role of a fluid challenge? Yeah, I think it does have a role, although I have to be honest in saying it's rare that I feel and feel it's necessary to do a fluid challenge. You know, if I have this patient, like I described, with, you know, left atrial enlargement, older patient, you know, and they have a wedge pressure of 14 or 15, I mean, I know what's going to happen when I give them fluid. So, but if you want to unmask it, I'm giving fluid. Sometimes we actually, this is sort of not evidence-based, but may do like a vasodilator test with NO and see if the wedge pressure goes up, because that may actually inform treatment. Some of these people where you're considering, let's say, uh, so then uh, PAH therapy who have borderline wedge pressures, if you give them NO and you see the wedge shoot up and you see the big V-wave, well, you've unmasked the patient with group 2 PH and may avoid treating them. 
Yeah, I've, I have had the same experience. Well, there are a lot of questions about right heart catheterizations, and hopefully we'll have time to come back to more of them during the question and answer period, but I just want to make sure we get through um, the rest of the presentation. So um, probably everyone has seen this slide about you know 600 times. I think it's a really informative slide. These are data or a table from the 2015 ERS ESC guidelines that go through the risk assessment of a patient with pulmonary hypertension um, or pulmonary arterial hypertension. And some of these have data behind them, mostly retrospective data. Some of them are just things that, you know, we, we know makes sense, you know, like the progression of symptoms. Like there's no data behind that, but we've all seen this time and time again. And so the table from the ERS ESC guidelines separated some of these factors out into low risk, like the expected 12-month mortality would be less than 5%, intermediate risk where the expected 12-month mortality would be between 5 and 10%, and high risk where you expect the one-year mortality to be greater than 10%. So the things that we know are important prognostic indicators are, you know, really how's the right ventricle functioning. If the patient has clinical signs of right ventricular failure on exam, that's a very high risk feature. If their symptoms are progressing rapidly, we know those patients tend to just continue to, to go downhill quickly. Syncope is a really important um, symptom. You, you know, syncope often happens in pulmonary arterial hypertension patients with exertion and it's often a result of just inadequate perfusion to the brain with exertion. You just can't get the blood flow through that high resistance in the lung, very much like with a syncope that aortic stenosis patients have. They can't perfuse their brain with exertion, and that really suggests advanced disease and pulmonary hypertension. Functional class, you know, people criticize functional class right and left. It's so variable. It's so subjective. What Rich may call a two, I may call a three. But in registry after registry and trial after trial, it has important prognostic implications. So obviously, functional class four patients have a high mortality. Similarly, with the six-minute hall walk, you know, it's a crude test. It gets a lot of criticism. But at registry after registry and trial after trial demonstrates it's important in terms of prognosis. Uh, cardiopulmonary exercise testing is not used quite as much, but there are also some data suggesting important cut points for uh, the peak VO2 and the VE, VCO2. Um, Natriuretic peptides are, are important. They're prognostic. They represent uh, really right ventricular failure stretch on the heart. Uh, and so there are some cut points listed there. Imaging, I just don't think we've done as good of a job with imaging as I would like to see in our, our papers, uh, really because there, there is not widespread use of MRI, which has some pre precise data points. Um, and on the other hand, echo, you know, quite often they're reported as qualitative and there's a lot of variability. And so we just don't have a lot of data looking at fractional area change or, or you know, other indicators of right ventricular function. So if you look at the literature, the two that are important and have been studied in registries include right atrial area and the presence of a pericardial effusion. And then as Rich and I were just talking about, the hemodynamics that are most important, you know, really it's not the pulmonary artery pressure. In fact, sometimes as patients get sicker and the cardiac output goes down, so does the pulmonary artery pressure. Really what matters is the function of the right ventricle as we've discussed, right atrial pressure, cardiac index, and mixed venous oxygenation. So with that as a background, there are a number of risk assessment tools. Uh, Rich, you wanna start walking us through some of those? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we don't have a lot of time, but so we're not gonna get into great details. This has been, I'd say, a fairly uh, recent advance in our knowledge in PH is that, that having a structured risk assessment really can help determine prognosis and help guide your therapy. And, and I think there's some very strong data to support that. You know, and there are different tools as Val alluded to. There's what's called the Reveal Calculator 2.0. And you can see that laid out here where you can take a number of, you know, parameters, underlying diagnosis, demographics, 
And then modifiable things like functional class, um, hospitalizations, and one can determine a, a score, a risk score, that can be used not just at baseline, but as well as in follow-up. And if you look here at the various components of the reveal risk calculator, there is nothing here that's surprising, per se, um, but it's nice to be able to, in a very discriminatory way, prognosticate at various stages in treatment using a lot of the parameters that Val has already alluded to. So um, this is, you know, accessible uh, and can be done in clinic, as I said, and, and it's a pretty powerful tool. Um, in addition, and this all came out a couple of years ago, there's a few uh, European-based registries that have come up with prognostic or risk assessment scores, the Swedish registry, French registry, and the Compare registry. And you can see here, without getting into all the details, that these were, were fairly sim similar. There were a little bit differences in what patients were actually included in those registries. But not to get into details too much, they all basically showed very similar findings that if you um, risk assess the patient using, again, commonly used parameters, BMP, functional class, six-minute walk distance, in some cases, hemodynamics, um, you could uh, prognosticate pretty accurately in a patient with low, intermediate, and high risk. And I would point out one thing here is that we're, we're really talking about survival prognosis here. So you have to keep that in mind. There are other things that we want to know about patients' clinical course, but if you want to predict survival or put a patient at low risk for a good long-term survival using these scores and, as you'll hear at the end, treating to get a patient to low risk, I use you know, the uh, fairly simple French uh, registry um, assessment in, in patients, we get BMPs, six-minute walk, and functional assessment at every visit. CAF, we use at intervals to give them risk assessment. How about, how about you, Val? I mean, do you have a structured risk assessment for all your patients as recommended? Yeah, yeah I, you know, Rich, there's so many ways to do it, and I think one of the most important messages is that you, you just do it, that you have to do risk assessment with every clinic visit. I also love the non-invasive French. Like, I, I do that every single time I'm seeing a patient anyway, right? It's functional class. I'm always talking to them, always assessing their functional class. Mm -hmm. Hall walk, we do that with just about every visit for just about every patient. And then labs, a BNP or NT pro BNP, and we do that at every visit too. So it's really easy to, to do that. Uh, and we do that pretty frequently. You can get tricks sometimes. You know, for me, it's the younger patient who functions really well despite a bad yeah. RV that's going to look better than they really are with that. And, you know, another one that I think is going to be really interesting and you're, and you're going to um, talk about it um, to some extent is, is the, the newer versions of Reveal or Reveal 2.0 Lite, which is very much like the non-invasive French but with vital signs in a serum creatinine or GFR right. added in. So I, I, I'm really looking forward to see how that functions in, in practice. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's doing really good. And then this slide just shows that, and this is really a critical point, that it's really the follow-up assessment that's key. And we tell that to all of our patients. We can't prognosticate at baseline because we really don't know how they're going to respond. Hopefully they'll respond well to the treatment regimen. So it's really the follow-up assessment that in some ways is more important. Um, and that's, you know, another way to say that is I tell the patients, you know, I don't know how you're going to do until I see how you do. And that's, I think, a really critical point. Um, and you can see this here, you know, the follow-up assessments really help discriminate prognosis. Um, so, again, the message that we're giving is that patients do need to be assessed at every visit, as Val said. You need to have some structured assessments. And even in our our, our recommendations from the World Symposium that both Val and I were involved in, you know, it says very clearly structured or risk assessment is critical and recommended. It doesn't specify which particular one, but you need to have a system. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Val, who will get into and we'll sort of dig into the therapies. Yeah, thanks, Rich. That was a great overview of risk assessment, which I agree is so critically important. So uh, the therapies that we have, and, and we have a slide here that shows the three pathways that we can currently target 
And every time I show a slide like this, I always start out by emphasizing that we, we show these three pathways because we understand them really well and because we have agents that target these three pathways so we, you know, we can actually exploit the, the abnormalities here to treat a patient. But I always emphasize that this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are so many other dysfunctional pathways in pulmonary arterial hypertension. And hopefully over time, we will be able to study more of them and have agents that, that can target growth factors, inflammation, and you know many other pathways that we don't currently target. So just think of this as the tip of the iceberg, and you know, hopefully in a few years, Rich and I will be back speaking with you, and there will be four or five or six pathways here. But for now, this is what we have. And starting from the left, we have the endothelin pathway. And the problem here is there's too much endothelin-1, which then targets the endothelin A and B receptors on smooth muscle cells, and that causes vasoconstriction and ultimately cellular proliferation. And we have oral agents that can block those endothelin receptors. The middle pathway is the nitric oxide pathway. And the problem here is there's a reduction in nitric oxide synthase, which is required to convert L-arginine into nitric oxide, which then works via the cyclic GMP pathway to result in vasodilatation. And ultimately, this has anti-proliferative effects. And we can target this pathway two ways. We can block PDE5, which inhibits the degradation of cyclic GMP, but we also have direct SGC stimulators, real SIGWAT, which can, can stimulate SGC really independent of any nitric oxide production. And then on the far right is the prostacycline pathway. That's the very first pathway that we ever had for pulmonary arterial hypertension. And the problem here is there's not enough prostacycline synthase, which is required to convert arachidonic acid into prostacycline I2. And that works via the cyclic AMP pathway to result in vasodilatation and ultimately it um, inhibits cellular proliferation. And we have many ways of targeting this pathway. There are many different types of prostacycline analogs which can be delivered IV, sub-Q, inhaled, and orally. And then there's also an IP receptor agonist that can be delivered orally as well. And so over the years, and you know, I think Rich and I have um, had a very exciting career to, to see so many agents FDA approved for pulmonary hypertension. Uh, you know, I think every single one of the agents on this slide has been approved during the course of our career. So that's been very exciting. Uh, there are three FDA-approved oral or oral endothelium receptor uh, antagonists um, targeting the NO pathway. There are two PD-5 inhibitors approved, and then um, the SGC stimulator real SIGWAT. There are a number of prostacyclic analogs, as I said, IV, sub-Q inhaled, um, and oral. So it's been a really exciting development uh, time. So let's start out. We'll go through some of these. I think probably most of you are aware of many of them, but we'll just summarize some of the highlights. Um, I'll start with the endothelin receptor antagonist. As I mentioned, that the um, stimulation of those receptors causes proliferation, hypertrophy, uh, vasoconstriction, and also fibrosis and, and inflammation. Um, and we have a number of ERAs that can target these um, this this pathway. Uh, it's important to remember that all of these are teratogenetic, and, and of course, we know patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension should not be getting pregnant anyway, but we have to counsel our patients that they need to use two methods of contraception uh, and have monthly pregnancy tests. The agents that we have available um, are listed on this slide. There is um, Bozentin, uh, which is really the first oral agent that we had available for pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, and this uh, agent still requires LFT monitoring. Uh, the subsequent agents, Massitatin and Ambrosatin, no longer require LFT monitoring, but they still require uh, pregnancy testing and are still 
distributed by a specialty pharmacy because of the risk evaluation and mitigation um, um, system that they need to be distributed under because of those side effects. Um, Bosentin and Ambersentin were initially FDA approved on shorter term studies that demonstrated an improvement in six minutes call walk, and Mancitentin was approved um, based on the larger Serafin study, which looked at time to morbidity and mortality. Um, then we move to the um, PD5 inhibitors and SGC stimulator. Rich, you want to? Sure. Oh, actually, that's, that's, I'm sorry, that's still me. Um, so no, I think, I, oral... I think that is me. I think that okay, is me. go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, see, we're a good team. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, so if you, if you look at the nitric oxide pathway, it's obviously a very important signaling pathway in smooth muscle cell tone and in, in vascular relaxation and clearly is impacted in pulmonary hypertension. And so, you know, it, it really... Uh, it makes sense to address that pathway, and we can do it now two ways. Um, we have PD5 inhibitors that obviously break, block the breakdown of cyclic GMP, as Val alluded to, um, and there are two of those, so Lenafil and Tadalafil. Um, they both have um, been shown to have benefit, also in relatively short-term trials, sort of the old, older way we did trials with the 12 or 16-week effect on exercise capacity, um, and both showed benefit. Um, in practice, you know, sometimes we'll use one versus the other. Tadalafil is nice because it's longer acting um, and, and seems to, you know, give a, a, a nice effect. So Lenafil, sometimes, you know, we may use um, in patients who are maybe a little more fragile that we may start at lower dose and less frequently. So, you know, different patients seem to tolerate different ones better between the two PD-5 inhibitors, one way to say it. Rio Sigwad is unique, as Val alluded to, in that it's an oral um, uh, guanylate cyclase stimulator. So it works in a different way by directly increasing cyclic GMP levels independent of nitric oxide. And that's, I think, makes it, you know, a nice alternative um, in some cases to PD-5 inhibitors. Um, and we should warn you, and you probably already know this, that any other nitrates, including, you know, for coronary disease, angina, PD-5 inhibitors, for any reason, cannot be used with Rio Siguat. And it also is a category X for pregnancy, um, and so um, proved under the trade name Adempus. So those are the, that's the nitric oxide pathway in terms of FDA approval. Um, oh, I, I guess I can mention the, the REMS program, and we've alluded to this, but this is a, a risk evaluation mitigation strategy. You can see here that all females must enroll, um, females must not be pregnant, um, and talks about monthly pregnancy testing for these drugs, and healthcare providers themselves must enroll in the program, um, as well as these things being closed distribution, only a limited number of pharmacies. So now we'll turn to the prostacyclines, and we'll have Val run through those. Yeah, and, you know, the prostacyclines, we, we know this pathway the best. This was the very first pathway that we had to target pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, 1995 IV epoprostanol was approved, and so we have a great deal of experience with that. Um, we also have traprostanol, which can be delivered in a number of ways, continuous IV, continuous sub-Q, in intermittent inhaled or orally either twice or three times a day. Um, we also have Iloprost, which is delivered inhaled, and um, Selexapeg, the uh, mechanism of action here is a little different. This is the IP receptor agonist, which is an oral twice daily agent. So um, let's uh, talk a little bit about oral um, traprostanol. This is FDA approved. Um, actually, the Freedom EV trial was recently released, which demonstrated an improvement in outcomes when using this on top of just one other oral background therapy. This one can be a little tough to use. Patients have a number of side effects, and so you have to start at a low dose and, and go slowly and make sure that the patients take it with food. Um, but they have these prostacyclin side effects, headache, diarrhea, nausea, flushing, all the prostacyclins have those. Uh, but sometimes the GI side effects are um, a little bit more prominent with oral traprostanol, and it really requires um, 
really a collaborative approach. Like I'm, I'm so grateful for my nurses who spend really a great deal of time on the phone with our patients in general, and particularly titrating prostacyclin therapies and managing those side effects. Um, and prostacyclin can also be used inhaled, or triprostanol can also be used inhaled. This was studied in, in the TRIUMPH study. Um, and again, you need to be taught by a, a specialty pharmacy nurse, and, and the dose needs to be increased gradually. This can have the typical prostacyclin side effects. Um, also can has co have cough and throat irritation uh, because of the delivery mechanism. But it's, you know, it's a good uh, therapy in appropriately selected patients. Inhaled Isoprost, another prostacyclin inhaled therapy, it's, it's, you have to take it a little bit more frequently than inhaled triprostanol. Uh, side effects are really quite similar. So Lexapeg, you know, I think we were all very excited about this agent based on the Griffon study. It was, you know, it's been so nice to move from these short-term six-minute hall walk trials to these longer-term morbidity and mortality trials. Um, and that was Griffon's study the, that looked at Telexapeg, the largest study that's ever been done in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. Um, but this is another tough drug to use. The side effects are similar to IV. Um, you know, but the dose titration, you know, really needs, the patients need some hand-holding and really need our, our really expert nurses to help manage those side effects. And then the, uh, uh, you know, IV epoprostenol, this is the one that's been on the market the longest. I think, you know, we, we have a long history with this therapy, um, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when we didn't have any other choice, everyone went on this therapy, and now there are many other choices. And so mostly this is used in patients with uh, the most advanced symptoms, um, the functional class late three, four patients, or the patients who are not improving when we start other oral therapies first. The patients need to be taught the techniques of sterile preparation of the medication, operation of the ambulatory infusion pump, and care of the Hickman catheter. Um, there is now a room temperature stable formulation, Velletri, so that they don't need the ice packs. And sometimes we can even get them pre-mixed cassettes, and that's actually a big quality of life um, improvement for patients. And then triprostanol can be delivered both IV and sub-Q. Um, Sub-Q, you don't have the risk of IV line infections of bacteremia, but sometimes it causes pain at the site of the subcutaneous infusion. And, you know, there's really no way to predict this. You know, in some patients, it's a little, and they can tolerate it, and they would much rather be on that than an IV therapy. And in other patients, the pain is so severe that they say, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather be on the IV therapy. And, and you just don't know. And here, again, is another uh, important uh, area where our specialty nurses are so involved in the care of these patients. Um, they are looking at an implantable pump for uh, IV, triprostanil. Um, there are a handful of centers that were in the clinical trial that have some patients on that pump, but it's not um, widely available yet. It mitigates the risk or really eliminates the risk of, of central line sepsis, um, but the patients need to return to the center to fill the, the pump. And I guess, Rich, um, you know, I think that that this is a nice opportunity, as I've tried to emphasize, the, the team approach and the collaboration with our, our nurses who really spend so much time walking the patients through these therapies would, you know, I, I just was wondering what your experience mm -hmm. has been like with managing these patients. Yeah, no, you brought it, you said it beautifully, Valerie. I mean, the... The key to successful therapy prostacycline is understanding how we titrate, understanding side effects, understanding how to get patients through those side effects. And there's no shortcuts to that. As you said, they need some hand-holding, um, but, but the success of the drug, of any of these drugs, depends on that. They're, they're all the same in that respect, in the prostacycline pathway, that the drugs are titrated, from very low doses, in some cases very high doses, and everything in between. And to do that, the only way you can successfully do that is that the patient understands what to expect and that they have um, a lot of support, um, whether it's with the mixing of the drug 
dealing with the site pain of its sub-Q, dealing with the other prostacycline side effects. And then for the clinician, the healthcare provider, to understand when is enough and when is too much with the, with the drug. And, and that requires some experience um, in terms of what is an acceptable prostacycline side effect and what are the best ways to manage those side effects. Yeah, Rich, I think that's a really great point. And the, and the way I describe that to patients is we need to balance the symptoms of pulmonary hypertension with the side effects of the drug. And, and that's a shared decision-making. That's a, the, an experienced physician talking with the patient and you know, sorting out their symptoms and the impact that the side effects have on their quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. Like when, you know, again, we say that you know, you're going to have some side effects with these prostacyclines. And, and if you have no side effects, you're probably not getting enough of it. And, but we don't want them to affect your life, so we want them manageable. So it's manageable side effects that we're really looking for in some ways. Great. So, you know, Rich, you and I have been doing this for a long time. You know, I referenced, you know, 20 years ago, we only had IV epoprostenol, and we would start a patient on one therapy. Our treatment strategy has evolved so much over time. Yeah, absolutely it has. And that's, again, a... a when, you know, we have, we're looking for new drugs, as Val said, and there's new targets and new pathways, extraordinarily exciting times. But even with the, the treatments that we have now, how do we use them together? And it, it's, it certainly makes sense that if we have drugs that work in different pathways, they'll, that's combining them actually work. And so, you know, early on in studies that Val led and I've been involved in, you know, we looked at sequential combination therapy, so adding drug B to drug A and adding drug C to drug A, B, and B. And that has shown benefit. Um, the big studies, Val alluded to the Seraphin study with Massey-Tentan, there's the Griffin study with Selexapac. These are what we call sequential combination studies that showed benefit. But things evolved even more, I would say, in that our current paradigm in many cases is actually starting upfront combination therapy, so drugs A and B, and maybe drug C, all starting initially. Um, and we have data now, you know, emerging that that's an effective approach. The AMBITION trial design shown here was the, really the first one in, that looked at a combination of two drugs, an ERA and a PD-5 inhibitor, as upfront combination therapy compared to either one alone, as you can see here. Um, and this was really the first large upfront combination study that looked at a morbidity mortality endpoint shown as wor clinical worsening or what we call inadequate long-term clinical response. Um, so the patient, it wasn't just enough that the combination kept them from getting worse, but that they actually reached an adequate clinical status. And I think that's an important concept in clinical trials in pH is that um, getting patients to a good profile is important and keep, certainly keeping them out of the hospital. So this is the classic composite endpoint. And that was certainly shown um, to have significant benefits. So this was upfront combination therapy in the AMBITION trial showing a 49% risk reduction of not reaching that endpoint of, of uh, adequate or good clinical response. Um, and so that's, you know, again, that's really led to um, the, the evolving paradigm, I would say. And this is just, again, showing a little bit more data on reducing the risk of hospitalization for PAH and showing, again, similar benefits with the combination of the two drugs. So, Rich, if I could just pause yeah. here to interject. You, you know, I think that's a really important point to stress. Like a hospitalization for PAH is is bad. Like once you get hospitalized, your subsequent mortality goes up. And there's been some important data from that published. Uh, and actually, even in the Reveal registry, they learned that as well. And so Reveal 2.0 actually added hospitalizations to the, the risk yeah. factor. So I, I think it's really important to un underscore that a hospitalization in and of itself is a, a high-risk issue. Yeah, I agree, and this is something that's emerged, you know, not just in ambition, but in other trials as well that, you know, that both of us have been involved in, you know, with Massey-Tentan, the Seraphin trial, we did a, uh, it was a secondary endpoint, but we published a paper on 
50% reduction in hospitalization with maxitentan, PAH hospitalization. As you know, in the Griffin trial, um, hospitalization was also part of the primary endpoint and seemed to drive a fair amount of that, of the benefit of the selectopag was the reduction in hospitalization in the treated group. Yeah, okay. so I, I yeah. yeah. So a very important endpoint. Um, so there are still patients, and lung transplantation has been performed for at least a few decades for patients with PAH. It's evolved, um, but, but for the most part, bilateral lung transplantation um, is still has a role. I think it still clearly has a role. Um, I think the nice thing is that we have these medical therapies that many patients do very well on for many years and don't need a lung transplantation, but there are still are patients who will need that. Um, survival is not the best with lung transplantation, although we certainly have patients who do very, very well after bilateral lung transplantations. And so I think, you know, what we're recommending is that patients who do remain intermediate or high risk, um, and this came from the Sixth World Symposium recommendations, should be referred for lung transplant evaluation. So, hey, Rich, um, yeah. you know, over the years we've developed new new ways of um, allocating lungs. You know, when we first started doing this, it was just time on the list, and we often just referred patients so they could accrue time. How do you think the lung allocation score um, has changed how we refer patients for lung transplant or how many of our patients get to lung transplant over the recent years? Yeah, I think it's made a huge difference. I think it's actually been a real, a real improvement in the um, in how we do it. And I, I remember the days where you, you know, it was it was a dilemma. It, you know, you had to put people on very very early, knowing they might wait years for the transplant, and you had to hope that they, you could keep them going until the transplant. Um, and it was really a true first come first serve. The earlier they got on the list. They would work their way up the list for their blood type and size until they got the call. And in addition, you know, you might have the opposite problem where the patient's getting called and they're doing really, really well, and then they'd have to, you know, deny, you know, the transplant, and then they would be off the list or at the bottom of the list. So it was a real mess. But now with the LAS system, although it's not perfect, you know, because lung patients with lung disease are very varied. They have cystic fibrosis, emphysema, uh, pulmonary hypertension. So the the prognostic scores, you know, are very different and what goes into them. But having said that, I find it to have been a drastic improvement in that our patients now wait, by the time they get on the list, they have a much shorter waiting time. Have you seen the same thing? Yeah, I, I you know, defi definitely. And then we can also be a little bit more reserved about, like, doing all the transplant work up in everybody, right? Because we only exactly. do it in those patients who remain quite symptomatic despite medical therapy. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So um, we, we talked about some of the PAH-specific therapies, and let's just spend a, a short bit of time talking about some of the other supportive therapies that are important. You know, way back when, anticoagulation was pretty standardly used, and it was really based on observational studies and registries before we had any specific PAH therapy. And more recent registries in patients who are on our agents um, have demonstrated really no improvement with anticoagulation. And some of our patients, such as those with scleroderma and high risk of GI bleeding, could actually be harmed. Um, and so I, I don't think we use, actually, we've taken off um, anticoagulation many of our patients. Um, Rich, have you done the same? Yeah, I mean, for a patient with true group 1 PAH, it's very rare we put them on anticoagulation um, nowadays. I mean, there may be exceptions if somebody has an indwelling catheter and they have a large you know, intraatrial communication where we worry about paradoxical embolus or things like that. We may have them on some anticoagulation, but not that many. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. Um, yeah. You know, I think something that we don't pay enough attention to is the need for supplemental oxygen. Our patients get hypoxic, uh, really not just at rest, but also at night with exertion, with altitude, and hypoxia is a further vasoconstrictor. So we want to try to make sure we address that and use supplemental oxygen when appropriate. 
There aren't studies with diuretics. I'm sure there never will be, but many of our patients need diuretics. They're in right heart failure. Their right ventricle is on a bad place on the Frank Starling curve, and if we can optimize their volume status and take some of that stress off the right ventricle, they do better. Obviously, you need to monitor electrolytes, creatinine. I think it's also important to remember that hypotension is not a reason not to use diuretics. In fact, some of our sickest patients who come in with hypotension, you know, your your reflux is to give them fluids because they're hypotensive, but if they're in bad right heart failure, that's really only going to make them worse. So, it's important to remember volume status. And you know, I think patients and and other physicians like nobody really wants to deal with volume. It's, you know, it's hard work, it's frequent monitoring. The patients sometimes give you pushback about taking their diuretics because they don't want to have to be going to the bathroom that much. Um, they, they really struggle with sodium restrictions, but it's a really important part of, of the care. And it's another place where I think our nursing staff is, is really integral. I, you know, I can't tell you, I walk by my nurse's area and I hear them talking to a patient and, you know, like literally asking, tell me what you ate yesterday. And the patient thinks that they're not getting too much salt because they don't pick up a salt shaker and, you know, they don't really realize how much is in McDonald's, you know. So I think that's a really important um, aspect of their care as well that is sometimes overlooked. Um, I really want to put in a plug for physical activity or supervised rehab. Of course, you want to get patients on therapy and feeling better, uh, but, but once you do, it's important to encourage them to exercise. There are some studies that show pulmonary rehab improves six-minute hall walk as much as any of our drug therapies do. So it's, it's really critical in these days with activity trackers and the like, you, you have something objective to to measure, and I've gotten some patients hooked on Fitbits and um, or other activity trackers, and every time they come in, they tell me what their average step count is, has been. So um, I think that's a great motivator. As we've mentioned, our patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension should not get pregnant. There's a high risk of both maternal and fetal mortality, uh, and so we need to counsel them on contraception, um, and that's that's a really important issue. And so many of these patients are young women, so it's, it's really important. And then the psychological support, it's really a hard issue to deal with. Uh, you know, a very high proportion of these patients have depression or anxiety, and it's not just the patient, it affects the family too. So it's, it's important to think uh, holistically about some of these other uh, issues that can affect patients. And so kind of wrapping it all up, moving to the algorithm, and this was from the Last World Symposium. Um, and starting at the top, it's important to make sure that the diagnosis of PAH is confirmed by right heart catheterization. Uh, the general and supportive measures that I just reviewed are something to consider. It's important to do acute vasoreactivity testing in those groups that may have that very robust response in calcium channel blockers if they meet the criteria, which is a reduction in mean pulmonary artery pressure by more than 10 millimeters to a mean pulmonary artery pressure of less than 40, if they meet those criteria on an acute vasodilator exam, they can be given calcium channel blockers, and uh, then they need to be followed. And the patients who are going to do well long-term on calcium channel blockers are those patients who improve to functional class one or two without the need of other therapy. Um, I generally, even if the patient tells me they're functional class one or two, this is a, a population that I will routinely repeat a right heart cath on it in six months, uh, six to 12 month time frame, because if they're really a calcium channel blocker responder, you'd expect to see pretty much normalization of their hemodynamics. Um, do you approach that group similarly, Rich? Yeah, I, I, I tell the patient here, you know, you have you were unlucky to get this disease, but you're really lucky to be in this group because very few of our patients are highly vasoreactive, and and because of that, and they're often young people, young women. I, I say you know our goal is to get you normal. You have these may be women in their 30s, and you say I want to get, see a normal echo, I want to see normal hemodynamics, and so you know we're pretty aggressive because they are in that very fortunate subgroup. 
Right. So for the vast majority of patients who aren't those privileged calcium channel blocker responders, we go to the risk assessment. And Rich very eloquently reviewed that. And whatever risk met assessment method you use, um, doesn't matter. You just got to do it. If they're high risk, and they could be high risk because the reveal score is, you know, is 15, or because they're functional class four, they're all in the red zone on ERS, ESC, or they meet none of the, the French parameters, whatever reason that is that they're in the high risk, um, most of us would recommend upfront combination therapy that includes a parenteral prostacyclin therapy. Um, it's, it's really important to be aggressive about those patients. They have a very high mortality in the ensuing year or even less. Now, fortunately, I think that's a pretty small proportion of the patients that we see, but it, it's important to remember that there are some patients who need IV therapy really right out of the gate. For the majority of the rest of the patients who are at low or intermediate risk, we use upfront oral combination therapy, generally with an ERA and PD-5. Um, and, and so that's the first step, but honestly, it's not the most important step. The most important step is reassessing that patient, reassessing them after three to six months of therapy. I tend to go more towards three these days um, and see if they meet the low-risk status. If they are low-risk, that's great. What you've done has been working. Um, you, you can feel comfortable continuing on that, them on that with continued reevaluations. But if what you did the first time doesn't work, if they're still at intermediate or high risk, you have to do something different. And that something different could be adding a third agent. It could be um, switching to a more aggressive prostacyclin if, if you started them on a prostacyclin. But you have to do something different and try to drive them down into low mm -hmm. risk. And so I think that that, um, that constant reassessment um, really for the rest of the patient's life is, is something that's important. Rich, any comments on the, the algorithm? No, I mean, we, you know, was involved in, in developing this and, you know, again, we purposely kept it broad and focused on the principles of management rather than specific agents. And I think that's really how, I think how we've evolved now that we have so many effective agents that we're really focusing on treatment strategies and, and combination therapy, when to use combination, when to reassess, when to add more therapy. So, I, Rich, always a pleasure to work with you. Thank you so much, and uh, thank you to the audience. I'll let you um, close uh, with any final comments, Rich. Yeah, yeah. Um, again, so many good questions. I mean, this is a, obviously a sophisticated audience based on the questions you're asking, and, you know, reach out to us offline if you ever want to discuss. I think, don't think either of us ever get tired of talking about PAH, amazingly, but we don't. And so we're always happy to, to discuss these things in detail with interesting, interested people. Great. Thank you to everyone. Thanks for your attention. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by American Thoracic Society and AKH and is supported by an independent educational grant from Actillion Pharmaceuticals U.S. Incorporated a Janssen Pharmaceutical Company of Johnson & Johnson, and Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.